0: Would you let the worship team and the tech team know how much you appreciate them leading us tonight, helping us tonight? I, I want to mention something real quickly on the front edge of this talk, this message, and, um, and then we're going to get into it. And-, and that is, I can't miss an opportunity, but what to say this, I hope that every one of you that are serious followers of Jesus, that you have daily devotional practices That every single day you're getting into the Word. That's how we get spiritual food, correct? What if somebody were to say to us, hey, you're going to have a meal on Sunday, and you're not going to be able to eat again the rest of the week until next Sunday, or you may get a meal on Wednesday, but basically you're going to eat once or twice a week, and that is about it. How many of you know that we would get pretty hungry, physically speaking, if that were reality? Now, now let me tell you something. That words um, it's not congruent with what I just mentioned to you. Do you realize that if you're not getting into the Word every day, it does not mean that you're necessarily going to get more and more spiritually hungry. Do you know just the reverse of that will happen? The more you put it off, the more after a while it seems normal not to get into the Bible. And so you just, it's like, well, I don't have an appetite. You know, you don't have a meal. Well, you get an appetite for later that day or the next day. Uh, but if you're not getting into the Word your appetite will wane, spiritually speaking. And having said that, if you say, well, you know what? I'm going to get serious about that. Maybe you've struggled with that in your own devotional life, and you're just not doing that, or you don't have a prayer time. Here's what I hope you will not do. I hope you will not say, well, I will read the Bible every day, but I'm only going to read the New Testament, period. That's it. I'm not even going to get into the Old Testament. Let me tell you what will happen you will miss some of the most incredible events that have ever happened in history if you leave out the Old Testament. So what I want to do tonight, guess where I want to take you. Anybody want to wonder about that? I want to take you into the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 7 is where we're going to go. But just before we get there, I want to share with you a story that I found out about an organization, a society really, that I didn't even know about prior to reading about it not too terribly long ago. It's a little museum on Nantucket Island, and it's devoted to a volunteer organization formed centuries ago, centuries ago. In those days, travel by sea was extremely dangerous, and because of the storms of the Atlantic along the rocky coast uh, was so bad, many lives would be lost within a mile or so of land. So a group of volunteers, this actually happened, a group of volunteers went into the life-saving business. They banded together to form what was called the Humane Society. It's what they called themselves. These people built little huts all along the shore. They had people watching the sea at all times. Whenever a ship went down, they would go out, and these people would devote everything they could to save every life that they could. They did not put themselves at risk for money or recognition, the story goes, but only because they prized human life. To remind them what was at stake They adopted a motto. I want you to listen to their motto. It was this. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back in. Interesting motto. Seems like that would hurt recruiting efforts, doesn't it? You have to go out, but you don't have to come back in. These are people who would risk everything, even their very lives, to save people that they had never met. But over time, I want you to think about this now, things begin to change. After a while, the U.S. Coast Guard began to take over the task of rescue. For a while, the Coast Guard and the life-saving society worked side by side. But eventually, the idea that carried the day was this. Let the professionals do it. They're better trained. They get paid for it. Volunteers stopped manning the little huts. They stopped searching the coastline for ships that were in danger. They stopped sending teams out to rescue drowning people. Yet a strange thing happened. They couldn't bring themselves to disband. The life-saving society still exists today. The members meet every once in a while to have dinners. They enjoy one another's company. They're not just in the life-saving business anymore. I think from that you would surmise that there's some things that we need to talk about tonight, that you and I can even be vitally connected to a church and uh, follow Jesus and love Jesus, read the Scriptures, but just over time, we're just not in the life-saving business anymore. In in fact, one of the dangers I think that we can get into is somewhat, if we're not careful, we don't really guard ourselves against this. You know what can happen? You and I uh, become so entrenched in the life of the church and year year after year after year after year that what we do is gradually over time, we forget what is our fundamental responsibility to tell people the good news about Jesus. And it's like, now it's just about us, and, you know, we come to church, and we worship, and we've got classes, and we've got outreach, and we've got events, and then we forget people that are far from God, people that are unchurched, that need to be on the receiving end of the same good news that you and I have had the privilege to receive. So we're going to spend our time, and we're going to make some conclusions, actually, surprisingly, out of 2 Kings chapter 7. does not sound like it's going to be a very evangelistic passage, but you're going to see that it actually is. We're going to spend our time there. 2 Kings, and to give you a little bit of a backdrop, a little bit of a framework, what is occurring here, 2 Kings actually describes the fall of Israel. There's a heavy affliction and despair that has entered into the life of Judah. This story, a a central character in this story, is a guy by the name of Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad, who is a powerful ruler in Syria. This is not the first time. We hear, how many of you know a lot about Syria in the news today? This is not the first time that Syria has ever been mentioned. <laughs> and so Ben-Hadad was this powerful ruler in Syria. And, and by the way, just a caveat to add to that, uh, the Syrians actually believed that their rulers, like Ben-Hadad, were direct descendants of their Syrian god, Hadad. So naturally his hyphenated name, Ben, and then in regards to their, their god, Hadad. And Ben-Hadad, just so that you understand what is happening here, Ben-Hadad at this point has levied a siege against the city of Samaria. So I want to make sure that all of us understand that because that is our beginning point. So all of us, if you're with me on this, just sort of wave at me like this. Ben-Hadad is the leader of Syria. Syria has levied a siege against the people of Samaria and the city of Samaria. So this is how an effective siege would play out. It would be terribly deplorable. It would be devastating to the city that it was up against. And one of the purposes of siege warfare, as it would be called in that day, was to create such a famine in that land. It would become so intense that the citizens that had previously been sort of, you know, had sort of hunkered down in this fortified city would be forced to surrender to that particular invading army or nation. So we're all on the same page in that. So this is what Ben-Hadad is doing. You've got to understand sort of the histor- uh, historical narrative. So it's like, all right, we're going we're to cause this siege, um, and they'd build siege ramps, all kind of things we don't have time to get into, and this is against Samaria. And what they're basically going to do is they're going to starve the people out. The people are not going to be able to eat. In fact, you know many times, I know that this sounds gruesome, but you've got to deal with the facts of the story. Uh, many times when this would happen, when an effective siege would occur and they would starve the people out and the people were not yet ready to uh, surrender, do you know what these citizens of whatever city it would, behind these fortified walls, would often do, they would resort. I know it sounds grotesque, but it's an actuality. They would many times resort to cannibalism. And that's what would happen. And there's an indication that this is actually what is occurring uh, here in Samaria. They were experiencing what every city in the ancient world at this particular particular time would dread. A siege which led to famine, which was connected to fear, and then after a while utter hopelessness would enter into the situation. So uh, just so we understand the story that we're going to launch from, they're living out their worst nightmare, and everybody had this sense that it was only a matter of time before all of them in some area behind these walls were going to die. All right? So I'm going to ask you one more because it's about to turn now. Are we all together on what is playing out here? All right. So all of this is occurring. Despondency prevails. And then out of nowhere, it at least seems four lepers stumble upon some good news. And you're like, how in the world... Can there be any good news? Now, before we dig into the heart of tonight's passage, I'd like for you to consider something. As it relates, because we're going to talk about good news, as it relates to spreading good news, do we, us, do we have any kind of personal responsibility in that? And I think this is a rhetorical question in many respects because I don't think there's a single one of us here tonight that if I were to ask you is it your responsibility to share the good news of Jesus with other people I think everybody here would say absolutely I have upon myself that responsibility. Now let's be honest how many of you how many of us know that we have that responsibility to share the good news but we don't always do it. And and so whose responsibility, you know, going back to sort of the Humane Society, Nantucket Island, you know, a lot of times it could be this idea, well, you know, that kind of thing is reserved for the professionals. Let's leave that up to the evangelists, to pastors and missionaries, and, but I'm just not going to get involved in that. Uh, and I think we all know that it is God's will that all of us would be involved in sharing the good news. You probably haven't heard of this guy. He pastors a phenomenal church out on the West Coast. His name is Greg Laurie. Greg Laurie. And he talks about the first time in his life that he led somebody to Christ. He was actually a teenager, and I'll just share it in his words. He said, the first time I led someone to Jesus Christ, I did not expect the gospel to work. Not through my mouth anyway. My only plan that I had was to fail. I was two weeks old, just two weeks old, a baby Christian, in my commitment to Christ I didn't know much about Christian living. I didn't know much about the Bible. But I heard that I should go out and share the good news with others. So one day I went down to the beach, the same one where I used to make a point of avoiding, he says, any Bible-toting Christians who might be trying to witness to me. Now here I was, a bona fide member, he said, of the soul patrol out prowling for unbelievers to convert. But I wasn't exactly full of confidence. My main goal was to find someone who wouldn't argue, or to find somebody who wouldn't get angry with me. I thought if an unbeliever just ignored me or walked away, that would be just fine. That's his thinking. Eventually, and I love this, uh, Greg says, eventually I spotted a lady who looked about the age of my mom. I imagined that she might be sympathetic to me. When I walked up to her, my voice was just quivering. I said, I, I, excuse me, but can I, talk, can I talk to you or something? She said, sure. What do you want to talk about? Uh, about, like, God and stuff? She said, go ahead. Again, remember, Grad's a teenager. She said, go ahead, sit down, talk to me. He said, so I pulled out a copy of the evangelistic track I'd stuffed in my pocket for a moment like this. Since Since I couldn't remember exactly what was in there, I read through the entire booklet verbatim. The whole time I read, I was shaking like a leaf and thinking to myself, this isn't going to work. Why am I doing this? This is not going to reach her. But the woman didn't leave, he said. When I got to that part that said, you're going to like this, is there any good reason why you should not accept Jesus Christ right now? I realized that I should direct this question to the woman. I hesitated, feeling awkward. I looked up and asked her, is there? She said, no. Okay, I said, slightly confused. Then that would mean you'd like to accept Jesus Christ right now. She said, yes, I would. He said, I was so shocked that for a moment I didn't know what to do. I had planned only for failure. Frantically, I searched the trap for some kind of prayer to lead her in. Finding one, I said in the most reverent tone that I could summon, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. But even as she prayed after me, I was still thinking, this is not going to work. After we were done with the prayer, the woman looked up and said, something just happened to me. And at that moment, I love this. He said, Something to happen to me too. I got a taste of what it was like to be used by God. I had completely underestimated the power of the gospel, but I determined that from that point on, no matter what else I did in life, I wanted to share my faith. I wanted to share the good news with other people. It's a great story, and that's our responsibility. If a two week old baby Christian, a teenager, could do this, how many of you know that you and I can as well? All right, 2 Kings chapter 7. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Let's take a look at it right here. Now, there were four men with leprosy. I mentioned them a moment ago at the entrance of the city gate. Remember, the siege is going on, uh, Syria against the Samaritan. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say, look at their predicament. If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. And if we stay here, they're outside of the city gates, we will die. How many of you know they don't have a lot of great options right now? Not a lot of great options. So let's go over to the camp of the enemy, the Arameans, and let's surrender them. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, we die. How many of you know what they're saying is, well, if that happens, it's no different than where we're at right now. If we stay here, we're going to die. If we go into the city where the famine is, we're going to starve to death. If we go over to the Arameans and they kill us, what's no different than what's going to happen anyhow. So let's just take a chance and let's see what's going to happen. In a few moments that we have together tonight, I want to give you some observations from this passage to consider. Here's the first one. Just think about it with me for a moment. Many people who continue to remain in their current condition are going to die. And now I'm talking about spiritually. You with me? Many people, if they remain in their current state, they're going to die spiritually. Remember what was said in the 8th part of verse 4? You saw it just a moment ago. If we stay here, if we stay like we are, we are most definitely going to die. Now, friends, it is exceedingly clear to these four lepers, not only were their bodies riddled with the effects of their leprosy, but fused together with that is this horrific famine occurring in Samaria to the point that people are becoming cannibals. What conclusion did they reach? It is this. If we remain in our current condition, we are going to die. And certainly we know that they're talking about not a spiritual death, but a physical death. But I want you to consider this. All of us every one of us, have people in our life, we have family members, and we have friends who, if they remain in their present condition, are going to die a spiritual death. Now, this is difficult for us to accept, isn't it? But it is true. Can I just give you something I think will encourage you? A lot of you know that uh, not too long ago, my dad, is only 72, uh, seems young, Uh, only 72 uh, years of age, uh, passed away. Now, what I probably have never said to a lot of you guys, I prayed for my dad's salvation so many years that I felt like giving up. Have you ever prayed? Let me ask you this. Have you ever prayed for a family member's or friend's salvation, and it seemed not only were they not making spiritual progress in their life, but they were going backwards, You ever felt like that? And I prayed for my dad, and I'd talk with my dad, and I'd share the gospel with my dad, and my dad knew. My dad knew. But he wasn't in those years, but I just kept on praying month after month, year after year, year after year, year after year, and just talking. And I'd have these conversations with my dad all the time. And then they'd intensify over the years, not in a negative way, but just the the depth of the conversation to the point that it reached. Uh, several months before he passed away when we finally reached that stage when I would say, Dad, do you know, not knowing that he was going to die, but, Dad, do you know that you know that you know that when you die, you're in right standing with God? And I'll never forget that time when he said, yes, I'm in right standing with God. Now, I had a conversation with my stepmom about two weeks ago. So this has been about a year and a half that my dad has passed away. And I had this conversation just for my own sake. I'd been thinking a lot about my dad, and to be honest with you, I was feeling quite sad about it. How many of you know that whenever you lose a loved one, you just want to pick up the phone and give them a call? I want to do that. Mom, a lot of you know. Mom, four months later, passed away. She was 70. I was driving along not too long ago, and I was just thinking in my mind while I'm driving in the car, I'm thinking like, I remember when I was a teenager, we moved from point A to point B, point A to point B, but I don't ever remember why, and then I just had this sudden thought, and it came in and I had to go out just as quick. I said, well, I do know what I'll do. I'll pick up my phone, and I'll call mom, and I'll ask her why but I couldn't do that. Couldn't call mom, can't call dad. But I was thinking a lot about my dad, so I'm in a conversation with my stepmom, and, and I said to her, hey, if you don't mind, just tell me, tell me what was the last few hours? I wasn't able to be there. Dad lived in Georgia. I didn't know that he was gonna pass away. I'd been with him a couple of weeks prior too. And I said, tell me, and she's like, Jeff, you know your dad, you know, the doctor had come in about 8.30 that morning and had talked to him and asked him how he was doing. Now, he passed away about three hours after this. The doctor asked him around 8.30, how's he doing? And you know your dad. Your dad said, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. And the doctor made some notes and said, well, I'm going to change your medication on a couple of things. A little while later, about an hour later, says to my stepmom, he says to her, he says, um... My stomach's hurting me a little bit, and, and see if I can get something for that. And then a, a little while later, about an hour later, or 30 minutes to four, or an hour later, he asked the same thing. So I'm listening. I'm engaged. And then she said this to me. I said, I said what was his last words? And she's like, well, that, that's sort of the remarkable part. said, you know, your dad had been talking quite a lot. And then he all of a sudden stopped, and this is what he said. He said, something is different. It's like I'm not even in this world anymore. And you know what? He was not filled with fret or trepidation. He was not afraid. And you know what, friend? I believe at that very moment, God was already taking him to heaven. But we don't give up. You say, do you ever feel like giving up on your dad? You can't believe. I hate to say that because I'm a pastor and pastors aren't supposed to say they felt like giving up. But I did. But we've got family members and we've got friends who, if they remain in their current spiritual condition, they're going to die. I read the statement about death not too long ago. Death will bring the ultimate answer, but once it does, you won't be able to tell anyone. It is a great irony to me that the keenest minds in the world spend their lives thinking about and probing and studying to answer this one question and never know for sure. Yet, this writer says, the biggest fool in the universe knows one second after he does what death is all about. I want you to read this verse with me, all right? Then we're going to move on. We've got a lot of ground to cover in the next 18 minutes, so let's go. Look at this verse out of Ecclesiastes. Here it is. Read it with me, everybody. A wise person thinks about death, but a fool thinks only about having a good time. That's out of the Bible. I didn't make that up. That's out of the Bible. All right, let me give you a second observation. You ready? Here it is. God is the one who initiates the plan for people to be rescued. That's God's plan. That is God's initiative. People don't just all of a sudden say, well, I want to become a Christian now. I love what the Bible says. The Bible says nobody can come to God unless the Spirit draws them. So don't give up on your family members and friends. You know what I tell people all of the time? Don't give up on your family members and your friends. Why? Because God loves them more than you love them, and God wants them to be saved even more than you want them to be saved. Don't give up on them. It's God who initiates this whole thing to be rescued. And you're going to see this actually playing out in 2 Kings 7. Look at these verses with me. Here we go. This is the activity of God. At dusk, they got up. We're back to the lepers now, the four lepers, and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. Nobody's there from the Aramean army. Not a man was there. For who? The Lord, the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear. It didn't actually exist, but it caused them to hear the sound of chariots and horses in a great army, which did not exist. God's just creating the sound and created the sound so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. Look at the rest of this now. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was, and ran for their lives. This, friends, is the activity of God. You see, the beauty of God's plan of salvation is that people do not have to construct a strategy to be rescued, nor do people have to be good enough to earn it. They simply have to respond. God is the initiator. God is the creator. God is the designer of the plan of salvation. All people have to do is open up their hearts. A lot of people think, you ever heard somebody say something like that? Well, I'll become a Christian, but right now I'm, 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 I'm just not, I'm not good enough. And, you know, and it's like, well, I'm going to make a decision, and then I'll do this, and, uh, you know, I'll do this, and they'll sort of bridge their way to God. And, and that's, that's fundamentally incompatible. God is the one who initiates salvation. You with me on this? It's God who initiates it. God is drawing that person. That's why we don't quit praying for him. I like this statement from Rick Warren. Take a look at it right here on the screen. One of my favorite statements, he said, the goal is not to make it as difficult as possible, but to make it as easy as possible for the unchurched to hear about Christ. We need to make it as easy as possible. I, I for one, and I don't say this is one of the pastors of the church, I am glad to belong to a church like you that makes it easier for the unchurched to hear the gospel. And, And we don't beat them up you know, when they come. Make it easy, all right? third observation out of this passage. When you find real life, you naturally want to celebrate. Isn't that true? When you find real life, what's the natural, sort of the net effect of that, you want to celebrate. Look at the A part of verse 8. The guys are going to put this up on the screen. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. And what did they find? Remember this, Aramean army has fled. They ate and drank and carried away Silver, gold, and clothes. How many of you know this is a total contrast as to what is going on back in Samaria? They're back there where the siege is. The people are like, you know, and so they, they find that this, this has occurred. Now, this new discovery birthed no doubt a great celebration for them. They were not only going to live, but now God had blessed them in the process. What does it say? They ate and they drank and they carried away gold and silver and clothes. It's like, what is going, have you ever found that? What is going on here? Have you ever found something you're like, man, I didn't expect that. How did I stumble upon that? Now, I can remember, although this happened a long time ago because I was an early teen, but I can remember being out with my buddies and we were doing some clothes shopping for school. And this is in one of the suburbs of Atlanta where I grew up. And I'm literally walking through this crowded mall and, and I looked down and I saw some money. And and I walked over to it, and and I reached down, and I picked it up. And as young, I counted it out, and it was $70. Now, how do you get $70 back to somebody in a crowded mall that has hundreds of people? I didn't know how to do that. And maybe looking back, maybe I didn't want to figure out how to do it. I just knew I could get me some more. And so I'm like, I, and and I remember being so elated. I'm like, to my buddies, I'm like, you know, I'm going to give me another T-shirt, another pair to date myself another pair of corduroy pants. I didn't expect this. I've been blessed. Look what God has done. And uh, can you imagine what these four lepers, you know, they're like, man, we're, we're just going to go over to them, and hof- hopefully they won't kill us. And then they get there, and the Arameans have fled. And they're like, what is going on here? Uh, Luke 15 talks about we won't go to it now. But lost sheep, lost coin, a lost son. And verse 7 says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in need of no rescue. All right. So, we understand what's happening. And I want to talk very, for the last few moments, we're together. I want to talk to you very practically. And I want to do that by saying, number one, everybody has problems. You agree with this? Everybody's got problems. How many of you, you have at least one problem, all right? And if you say, all right, Jeff, I hear what you're saying, but I don't have a problem. You've got a problem. You've got a problem. It's honesty. It's delusional thinking. Everybody's got a problem, at least one. You've got a problem. I've got a problem. All God's people got. And and let me, listen, I know it's not the topic of the message tonight, but our problems are going to exist until we get to heaven. Heaven is the only perfect place. If all of our problems got cleared up on earth, why would we ever want to go to heaven? Heaven's the only perfect place. So everybody's got problems. These guys have problems. These four guys, mentioned in verse 3, here in chapter 7, they have a massive dilemma. And again, I'll just hit this real quickly because I've already alluded to it. Not only do they have leprosy, how many of you know that's a big problem, but they're also having to face this famine that was intruding itself upon their lives. One Bible scholar has rightly said this: that according to ritual law, a leper was quarantined outside of the settlement. Caught in a death trap, not talking about these four specifically, caught in a death trap, the four decided to desert to the enemy camp. That's what's going on here. Now, we know that everybody has problems, but do you also, I want to connect this together, but do you also realize that it's often those very problems that prompts a person to seriously consider life and relationship in Jesus? How many people open up their life, you know, everything's going well, and they're not really thinking about God? They start dealing with some problems, some addictions. And they're like, you know what? This addiction is, is bigger than I am. I, I, I want to stop, but I can't stop. Or a person is terminally ill, or they have marriage problems, or they have financial problems, or, or they're recently unemployed, or they're having problems with their kids, or they're lonely, or they have anxiety. And God often, not causes, Pastor talked about that recently with Job, that God didn't send the problems, but God allowed them. And God often uses emotional pain to get people's attention. And a person says, Well, you know what? I need somebody bigger than me. I need some help. I need help with my pain. All right, practically speaking, I want to give you something else to think about. When God has provided such a wonderful gift, you just cannot hide it. You can't hide salvation. Well, we do, but we shouldn't. This is back in 2 Kings 7. Look at verse 8 and then the eight part of verse 9. Here we go. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp. We saw this a moment ago. Entered one of the tents. They ate and drank and carried away. We saw that. Silver, gold, and clothes. And went off. Look at this, this part. And they went off and hid them. This is for us. Payday, boys. We hid the jackpot. This is all of ours. They returned. They went and hid it. All right, so what did they do next? Look they returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid that also. Then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of what? This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. Are you making the connection here? This is a day of good news. Look at what God has done. And we're keeping all of this to ourselves. I want to strongly encourage you not to hide the activity of God in your own life. Please do not keep to yourself the reality that there is not one human life that God is unable to transform. You think about the worst possible person, God is able to transform them. You see, most all of us in this room, we have already received the incredible gift of salvation, but God never intended that we would cover that up or keep it a secret. We're not to say, well, look what we've, look at, you know, the four lepers, look at what we found. We have gold, and we have silver, and we have clothes, and we have food, and we have drink. Let's just go and hide it. This is all about us. Let's just keep this for ourselves. How many of you know that as Christians, we sometimes do that? We, we're not talking about the goodness. We're talking about so many other things. Hey, you know, what about this? Or there's a big sale going on here. Have you tried this? Or we're, you know, and we're talking about a lot of things, but we just lose our spiritual consciousness as to why God still has us in this world, and that is to tell others how good that our God is. You probably have seen this commercial at some point. It's a commercial for Mercedes-Benz. This particular commercial shows their car colliding with a cement wall during a safety test. Someone then asked the company spokesperson in this uh, commercial why they they do not enforce their patent on the Mercedes-Benz energy-absorbing car body, a design evidently copied by other companies because of its success. And the spokesperson for Mercedes-Benz, listen to how they respond. He replies matter-of-factly, because some things in life are too good to not share. Some things in life are too important. And how many of you know, if that's in regards to a great car, then that certainly ought to be in regards to the gospel. Some things are too important not to share. That God can rescue and change the lives of your family, your friends, is too important not to share. Let me start wrapping this up. So if you have some good news, this is what I think the story is leading us toward, then certainly you can't hide it. You've got to tell it. It's not on the screen, but I love the language, the A part of the verse we just saw a moment ago. They said to each other, we're not doing right. We're not. And then they follow up by saying, this is a, good, a day of good news. This is the day. Now, in 2 Kings chapter 7, their discovery of good news we know is almost stifled. And then it suddenly hits them. There's no way that we can keep this to ourselves. Let's go and let's tell all of the other people. We've got to tell them. We've got to let them in. And you know what, friends, that's our responsibility as Christians. we got to tell them. We can't hide this. God didn't save you for you to keep that to yourself. God didn't redeem your life. God didn't reserve for you a special spot in heaven just so that you and I can relish over that. It's our responsibility to tell others. In fact, throughout the Bible, we see this pressing priority of letting others in on the good news. Look at this verse right here. We know that Jesus declared that it was his mission in life to spread the good news. Look at this verse, Mark 138. Jesus replied. Look at what he said. Jesus replied, "We must go to the nearby town so that I can tell what the good news to these people." Jesus said, "It's so important. This is the reason why I came. I came to tell good news." Uh, here's another thought. The good news is that the power of God is at work in this world to redeem lost people. It's not just about us being clever enough to share our testimony in such a way that people become convinced to follow Jesus. How many of you are happy to know that before we ever share our faith, God has prepared the heart and the mind of the person to be receptive? Sometimes they want, but sometimes that no is not a no, it's just a not yet. And like, with well, Dad, I just keep on praying. I just keep on talking. I just keep on believing. Look at this verse, Romans 1:16. for I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is a power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. Here's another thought concerning uh, the good news that we find in the Bible. Jesus intended that we would spread the good news wherever we go, school and work, neighbors and friends and family members and strangers. How do we know this? Look at this last verse. Mark 16, 15, then Jesus said to them, let's all read it together, everybody, then Jesus said to them, so wherever you go in the world, tell everyone the good news. Well, I want to wrap it up tonight, sort of this challenge for all of us by sharing with you what I think is a humorous story. How many of you have ever heard the name Eugene Peterson? Have you heard that name? this great, uh, you know, pastor, writer, scholar. You know, it is Eugene Peterson, in case you're saying, like, I know that name, but where do I know it from? He's the guy who translated the Message Bible. Eugene Peterson, all right? So Eugene Peterson writes about how he grew up, and I'll share this quickly, and then we're gonna be done. Eugene Peterson writes about how he grew up in a very devout Pentecostal Christian home, but when he started first grade, he felt the tension of life with non-Christians. So when he was in the first grade, A second-grade bully named Garrison Johns picked Eugene out to be his victim. This is what Eugene writes. Again, he's a first grader. He said, I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing the verse. Bless those who who persecute you and turn the other cheek. He says, and this is in Eugene Peterson's words. He said, I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me. Some sense, I guess, that bullies have. Most afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He also found out that I was a Christian, and then from that point forward, he taunted me with these words, Jesus, sissy, every single day. He said, I arrived home most days bruised and humiliated. Listen to how his mom responded. My mother told me this had always been the way of Christians in the world and that I better get used to it. You know, real compassion, nurturing kind of time. She also said I was supposed to pray for him. So Eugene Peterson said one day I was with seven or eight of my friends when Garrison caught up with me in the afternoon and started jabbing me. He writes, his words, that's when it's happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground. I sat on his chest. I pinned his arms to the ground with my knees, and he was helpless at my mercy. It is too good to be true. He said, a first grader now, I hit him in the face with my fist. It felt good, and I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. This is Eugene Peterson now, scholar, writer, translator of the Message Bible. I said to Garrison, say, uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. He said, then my Christian training reasserted itself, and I said, say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. I tried again. Say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he finally said it. Eugene Peterson closed the story out by saying, Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. (laughs) How many of you know there's better ways? There are better ways. We take the path of Jesus and not the path of Eugene Peterson, at least as a first grader. This is a day of good news. It's a day of good news. Man, if you received it, you got to tell it. You with me on this? You know that 50% of the people that come to Christ come through the influence of a family member or friend. The other 11%, they come at the invitation to a special church event. Six out of every 10 people that come to Christ come because somebody just like you said, this is a day of good news. I can't hide it. This, I got to go and tell everybody. The four lepers could have kept it for themselves, but they would have missed what God had for them. I'm so glad you came tonight. Would you stand with me for a closing prayer? After this prayer, we'll open the altars. And you may be here tonight, and you may be saying, well, you know, I need encouragement. I'm one of those, Pastor Jeff, I've got a problem. I've got a challenge in my health. Where I work, I've got a challenge in my finances. I've got a challenge in my home, my family, and I need prayer. There's some wonderful, wonderful people that love you and care about you, and they're going to be here in the front. And we're not going to have a formal dismissal. When you're ready to go, you can go. But I'm just saying to you, if you've got a challenge, and you're just saying, I, I, I need somebody to pray with me, I just need a little encouragement, then there's some people here that want to pray with you. God loves us, doesn't he? And God loves the whole world. And God wants to work through you. And you're saying, but God can't work through me. And I'm saying, yes, he can. If he can work through a teenager like Greg Laurie and can share the gospel and somebody receive Christ, he can look and work through somebody like you. So, Father, we thank you for this great night. Thank you for the privilege of belonging to a great church family. And God, I'm saying this tonight to people that already know it, but perhaps a lot of them are like me, We just get so caught up in church life. And that's a good thing but we forget those who are so far from you and they need to hear good news. God, we make a decision tonight. We drive a stake in the ground. We're not going to hide it. We're not going to bury it. This is a day of good news and we've got to go and tell everybody because everybody deserves to hear that Jesus died for them. So help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. I love you, everybody. Have an awesome rest of the week. We'll see you back in church on Sunday.